Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. This morning, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to continue with our study through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. And uh, what a wonderful, wonderful passage this is this morning. I hope that it blesses you the way it has blessed me as I've uh, been studying this. But if you would, stand to your feet as we read the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. This is the Word of God. Love is patient, love is kind. It is not jealous, does not brag, it is not puffed up, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. Would you bow? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the life that these words bring into our everyday lives, Lord. I pray that as we study this passage today, that our eyes would be opened to the truth, that our hearts and minds would be ready to receive your word. And Lord, give each and every one of us, including myself, the courage to align our lives with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. We all know that God's word says that all scripture is profitable, but there are passages of scripture that tear back any facade in our lives, and it leaves us exposed before God. This happens to be one of those passages. So before you go through this passage and place a check mark beside the ones in which you feel you measure up, there are a few things about this that you need to understand. Consider this passage describes perfect love. This passage describes eternal love. And this passage describes God's love. There's no way that we can attain loving others perfectly because we're limited in our temporal circumstances, but we can certainly grow and really 
we must grow as believers in Christ. And remember, this passage is continuing Paul's rebuke of the members of the church there in Corinth, taking them to task for the absolute chaos that they had been involved in in that local church. It was absolutely a mockery of what Christ intended his church to be and really just a total lack of love for one another as their actions reflect their desire to be important, to garner attention, to promote themselves over everyone else. Uh, And in short, it, it was just a selfish love. They were just selfish people. As their actions, I'm sorry, they desired, uh, Paul says, they desired the gifts that seemed most important in the eyes of men. The grand gifts, the supernatural gifts, they wanted to seem super spiritual to everyone else in the church. They wanted to be elevated in their position. So they had an unhealthy desire for the greater gifts because they wanted to be one of the front men, one of the big dogs with everyone's eyes on them. However, Paul here is setting them straight in the midst of his rebuke. He's showing them a more excellent way. That's how he describes it, a more excellent way. As we studied last week, we saw he is laying a foundation for them first before he launches into this next section. He says, If I could speak every language known to men, even the language of angels, having all mysteries revealed to me, if I knew everything and could argue with the most excellent of oratory skills, all of that, and I do not have love, I am simply making noise. That's what Paul says. He says, If I had the faith to move actual mountains to perform all kinds of incredible miracles that would, that would cause everyone's eyes to turn to me, and I would get that sort of attention. And if there were whispers among the masses of people talking about how great I am, you, you hear everyone saying, wow, you know, that guy is really something. Look at him. But I do not have love. He says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm of no account. He says, if I sold everything I had, bit by bit, and I use the money to buy food and feed the poor, spoon feed them bite by bite until I actually had nothing. I was completely bankrupt and I had given it all. And after having done even that, I walked the road of a martyr and I gave my body to be burned at the stake and I did even that without love. He says, it would profit me absolutely nothing eternally. Paul gives these Corinthian believers the gift of new perspective before he moves on to define what a true, genuine love looks like, what God's love looks like. He begins with two descriptives of what love is, and then he continues with descriptives of what love is not. Beginning in verse 4, he says, Love is patient. This word is is usually not describing being, being patient with our circumstances, but rather being patient with people, all right? Being patient with people. Long suffering, suffering long. I came to know the meaning of long suffering or suffering long on a 12-hour flight to Istanbul. And on the way back when I had a guy sitting next to me that was really uh, 
much larger than me and his elbow was in my ribs for 12 hours and I, I kind of wanted to reach over there and plug his nose while he was sleeping and, and I really had to just, uh, you know, try to walk in the spirit in, in that uh, time on the plane. Uh, suffering long. You know what the word suffer means. You know what the word long means. That's a great description of what it means to be patient. This is a 70 times 7 type of ability to be inconvenienced or even taken advantage of by someone and still you refrain from getting angry or upset. Though you may have the power to retaliate, you might even have the resources to get even, but you choose not to do so. You choose to love selflessly instead. Romans 12, 17 says, do not repay evil for evil. In Matthew 5, 39, Jesus said, if someone slaps your right cheek, you turn them the left cheek also. It doesn't mean turn around and walk away. It means turn the other cheek to be slapped as well. But Pastor Mike, you, you might ask, what about my rights? What about, you know, am I, am, I, am I just supposed to stand there and take it? Take the abuse. Let me ask you this. Think about this. If your ability to absorb the hate and return selfless love is the one thing that would break the hardness of someone's heart and open their eyes to something that is otherworldly, something so drastically different than what they're used to, something eternal. What if your patient loves love opens their eyes to the gospel? Proverbs 18, 19 says, A brother offended is harder to win over than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. We saw Peter cut off Malchus's ear and Jesus immediately responds by healing it. So which do you think would make that wayward man hear the truth of the gospel? Would it be Peter's reaction or Christ's restraint? Would it be Peter's revenge or Christ's restoration? That's our ministry. Jesus was simply acting like his father and we're supposed to act like Jesus. Well, how does Jesus act like the Father? Well, in God's patient love that endures today for the sake of those who will follow Christ, He stays His hand of wrath, enduring the unthinkable injustice of men. Think about today all of the injustice happening in the world today, and God has every right to take um, His hand and wipe out humanity if He wanted to. But He stays His hand for one more eternal soul. Why does he tarry? Why does he suffer long? Because of his love for that one last soul. He will wait. Love is patient. It will take whatever it must take for the sake of another. But also love is kind. It will give whatever must be given for the sake of another. Loving kindness gives by way of sacrificial service acts of kindness, helpful things. If you love someone, you will help them. Teenagers, if you truly love your parents, you will be kind to them. You will help them by obeying them. You will not make their life miserable. You will be a help to your mom and dad. Uh, 
Siblings that truly love one another are kind to one another. You will selflessly give of yourself for your brother or your sister and their well-being. Husbands and wives, true love expresses itself in selfless ways, not selfish ways. And one of the most obvious signs of, a true, of truly loving your spouse is just simply be kind to them. Be kind to them. Make an effort to do kind things for them, to remove, if only a small portion, of the burden that they carry each day. Selfless love expresses itself with kindness. Love is not jealous. Jealousy cannot coexist with genuine love. There are two types of jealousy that people deal with. First, the I want what they have kind of jealousy. And when the destructive seeds of that first kind of jealousy are in full bloom, you have the I wish they didn't have what they have kind of jealousy. Both of these were active in the church at Corinth when Paul wrote, quote, but you desire the greater gifts. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, he's saying that you are jealous. You have a strong negative desire. You're jealous. You want what they have, and you wish that they didn't have it. You want to take their place. Proverbs 27, 4 says, Wrath is fierce, and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? You don't have a chance if you allow your heart to be given over to jealousy. So we read that Paul told them, you are jealous of those greater, seemingly more important spiritual gifts, and this cannot continue in the body of Christ. Why? Well, James 3.16 puts it this way, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil practice. Does that not, that, not hit the nail right on the head when we hear the descriptions of the church at Corinth? Jealousy simply has no place in the house of God. It has no place in our relationships with those that we say we love. Love is not jealous. And in addition, love does not brag. Love is not puffed up. While jealousy is wanting what someone else has, being puffed up or bragging attempts to make others want what we have. Boasting and being puffed up or arrogant can cause others to fall into the sin of jealousy. So just like, you know, someone being immodest might cause someone else to fall into the sin of lust, causing our brother or sister in the Lord to stumble is a serious issue. Not to mention, <laughs> bragging is just gross. It's just gross. It very quickly exposes a heart that lacks humility takes an hour to be around someone who brags in, in such a way and you know exactly where their heart is. And you know what I'm talking about. I know you guys have met some of these types of folks. They know everything about everything and, and they're going to make sure that everybody knows that they know everything about everything. Besides that, if Christ is foremost in your mind and your heart, you cannot possibly brag. If He is foremost in your mind and heart, you cannot possibly brag. He was God. He was God in man's form on this earth, and yet 
I can't find one scripture in which Christ actually exalts himself. He always pointed to the Father. Not one of us has any reason to brag. Nothing you have originated in you and everything that you have. Every single thing that you have is a gift from the Father. Everything. 1 Corinthians 4, 6-7, through 7, we studied this not too long ago. Paul writes, Now these things, brothers, I have applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to go beyond what is written, so that no one of you will become puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? So if God gives you talent or gifts, why are you bragging about those things? It didn't originate in you. It was a gift from him. So stop bragging. You and I are not immune. We have to keep watch over our hearts daily. This is something I watch like a hawk in my own life. Certain circumstances in life like our intellect, our education, uh, the amount of talent we may have in one area or another. Maybe we've achieved a certain measure of success. Maybe we've grown a big church. It can all make us think more of ourselves than what we are. And time and time again over the years, I've been witness to men who once had a clear, earnest purpose to serve the Lord, a divine call to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And somewhere along the way, they believed, they began to believe the sweet, edifying, but seductive words of the people around them, what they were saying about them. And they began to believe that their gifts, their success was in some way because of them, because of their efforts. And this sin of arrogance gave way then to other sins. As Proverbs sixteen eighteen says that, Pride goes before destruction and a puffed up spirit before the fall. Many of these men blessed with such talent and potential fell and were but a shadow of who they might have been had they only loved God more than they loved themselves. You simply cannot truly love God and seek to steal His glory for yourself can't happen. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. And continuing on, love does not act unbecomingly. In other words, it's not rude. Love can be defined as far beyond the definitions of being gracious or hospitable or considerate. But anything less than that is certainly not love. To be considerate is the bare minimum, and that's setting the bar really, really low. For instance, those moments when you really want to say something, love holds its tongue. You should not always express your opinion. And if you do, if you can't hold your tongue, you may, oddly enough, find your circle of friends growing smaller and smaller. Show me a person who is inconsiderate, inhospitable, or rude, and I will show you a person who struggles with selfishness who finds it difficult to truly love others more than they love themselves. And speaking of selfishness, verse 5 says, Love does not seek 
its own. Love is not selfish. If we want to love others the way that God loves, we should pray that if we've been blessed with a position of strength and power, God has blessed you with power, God has blessed you with strength, God has blessed you with influence, we should pray that we would be given an opportunity to use it in some way to bless those who are weak, who are less fortunate, who may not have that position of power that you hold. If we've been blessed with abundant resources, we would be we should pray we could be given the opportunity to offer it to those who have very little or even to support and and uh, and help uh, the kingdom of God advance forward. If we know someone that is suffering, we should pray that we would be given an opportunity to show them compassion in some way. Even in some small way that we would be compassionate toward them and to do this is to have the heart of God, is to love like God. Jesus himself said, if you've done these things for the least of these, you've actually done it to me. So when we use those resources or that power, that strength, and we do something for those who are less fortunate, we are actually doing it for Christ himself. Next it says, love is not provoked. Love is not Provoked. This means if you love someone, it's difficult for them to, to provoke you to anger. It's difficult for them to provoke you to anger. And this is an area that I personally have to submit to the Lord on a regular basis because, um, you know, sometimes as pastor and just, you know, in the world we live in, you deal with a lot. And sometimes I feel like I deal with a lot from other people. And I... I, my nature is to let things roll off my back. It kind of comes naturally. I don't internalize things too much. But there are seasons in my life where that, those, those types of things don't roll up, and I can bottle it up. I can hold it in. And as that fills up, while I would likely never lash out at one of you, dear people, guess who is the one who gets doused in the overflow of that cup of my wrath? That would be the people I love the very most in this world, my kids and my wife. And admittedly, that is absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Just because your wife makes a vow for better or worse doesn't mean you get to keep her in a perpetual for worse scenario. Marriage is perhaps the most, the most amazing, beautiful, sweet rewarding thing that the Lord has given each and every one of us who enjoy that, this side of heaven. And if you don't feel that way about your marriage, then chances are you're probably caught up in trying to change the other person instead of each of you submitting to the sanctifying work of the Spirit in your life. There's too much finger pointing, too much selfishness, and far too little praying for one another. Far too little selfless love. In that environment, provoking one another to anger comes quickly, actually at the drop of a hat. And today is the day, husbands, wives, today is the day that if this sort of thing is going on in your marriage, you can swallow your pride in light of what God's word says, admit your part of the problem, take responsibility for your own shortcomings, and ask your spouse for forgiveness do not let one more day pass without getting it right. 
without making it right. You cannot go through life married to someone that you consider an adversary. Do you understand? That is a terrible way to live. You are allies for the purpose of accomplishing God's plan. You will never be able to do that if you cannot humble yourself, repent, forgive, and start working as a team. Work towards His goals, His passions, His purposes together. And then this next statement in verse 5, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That word is a bookkeeping term. It means to calculate. It means to keep a ledger. So if you want to love the way Christ loves, you need to cook the books. You need to burn all the receipts of the wrongs. Keep no record of wrongs at all. It's done away with. Once it's forgiven, it's gone, never to be spoken of again. Jesus doesn't take your past sins and throw them up in your face. As a matter of fact, the devil does that. He's the accuser of the brethren. And you want to be like Jesus, not like Satan, right? Yeah, there's an obvious answer to that question. Psalm 103.12, as Billy read earlier, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. He cooked the books. He got rid of all the records of all the wrongs you've ever done when it was laid upon Jesus and you received the righteousness of Christ. So don't you dare bring something in the past that your spouse or your child has already asked you forgiveness for. Don't you dare bring that up and throw it in their face again. Love does not keep a ledger of past wrongs and use it for the purposes of manipulation. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. To rejoice in unrighteousness means to try and justify it, to call evil good and good evil. And my goodness, have we not witnessed that today to the extreme when you think of uh, abortion and homosexuality and sex before marriage and people living together before their marriage. It's just, it, it, it's just, it's, it's rampant in the church. It's rampant in the church. Society just chalks it up to us being old fashioned. But honoring God and what we do and honoring God in the very things we say is never out of style. It's always in fashion. Mainly because one day you're going to stand before Him and give an account. Even in the little things. So you ask yourself, am I flippant about even the little things I say? Do we honor God with our speech? But Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36, He says, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. Every careless word. What about the things we involve ourselves in? If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 through 22, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 through 22, it says, Examine all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from even the appearance of evil. You don't even have to be doing something wrong 
If to your brothers and sisters in Christ, it appears that you are engaged in some form of evil, you need to repent and not do it anymore. Stay away from even the appearance of evil. Because if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you should not live in such a way as to confuse them about where your loyalties lie. We shouldn't skirt up to the edge of sin to get away with as much as we possibly can without crossing the line into sin. We are children of we are children of the light and we should walk joyfully in the light and we should live out the truth in such a way that there is no doubt to anyone around us who we belong to. We should be above reproach. Above reproach. Now Paul is about to clarify something marvelous. In the next few verses, he transitions the focus from the temporal to the eternal. It shifts from our seeking to reflect His love in this life and doing so, might I say, inadequately. And the shift is to His faithfulness, His perseverance. Paul turns their gaze upward to eternity, to the God that is the object of our faith and to the glorious hope of our eternal home that awaits for us in the future. Verse 7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. We love one another in this broken world as best we can. And then we stumble. When we stumble, we keep going because you and I know this is not the end. This is not the end. We live in the light of eternity that is yet to come. And because of that, because we are in Christ, we are invincible. We're invincible. Because He loves us, we can love others and we can bear whatever we have to in this life knowing what is to come. We believe every single word that God has spoken to us, and the Spirit of Christ within us is the deposit in this temporary shell that guarantees our inheritance in eternity. The Spirit seals us and guarantees us that one day we will be changed. And because we know that He loves us, with an invincible, everlasting love, we can endure anything this world throws at us because His love never fails. His love cannot fail. So Paul is setting up the next several thoughts with eternity at the forefront. Verse 8, But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. Now remember, prophecy is speaking not of a, a future-telling sort of spiritual gift. Sometimes it filled that type of need. But prophecy just simply means to do what I'm doing right here, to speak truth before the people. That's what prophecy is, to boldly proclaim the Word of God. So we need God's Word proclaimed now in this life, but we will not need it preached in eternity because we will live in the very presence of God, in the eternal light of His life and his truth, it will be realized. He says, if there are tongues or languages, they will cease. In other words, there will be no language barrier in eternity. We will not need interpreters there. We're all going to speak the same language. He says, if there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. We operate in partial knowledge right now. 
God's word is but a glimpse. It's only scratching the surface of the eternal truth that we will be exposed to when we get to heaven, when we are with the Lord. So when we step into his presence, our eyes will be open and our minds will breach the matters of time and space. And we will be like him, God's word says. We will see things as he sees things. We will have all eternity to explore his riches and his boundless love and his infinite nature. But for now, Paul says we live in the partial. We live in the partial. Look at verse 10. He says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And Paul clarifies this even further in verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. He's making a point that right now we are like mere toddlers in this temporal world when it comes to the things that we know and understand. And in the same way that we outgrew diapers and pacifiers and training wheels as children and our reasoning was immature, it was inadequate. And the older we get, hopefully, we've learned some things uh, about how things really work. We've gained wisdom and we've learned from our mistakes. And in the same way that we graduated from those other earlier forms of life and existence, when we step into our eternal home, we will graduate into a brand new form of life, a brand new infinite existence. That's yet to come. Look at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. You see back then, many of their mirrors were just polished metal. So you'd look in the mirror and and you would often look like Quasimodo, right? I mean, I know what that's like. Many of you don't, but he's saying here, now in this partial, we see in a mirror dimly. We, we can barely see our reflection, but then we will see face to face. That's as clear as it gets. Now we know in part, but then I will know fully just as I've been fully known. So right now, Jesus knows everything about you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your deepest thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing that is hidden from his sight. He has that all-seeing, fiery, penetrating gaze. He knows everything about you. There's nothing hidden. But here's the thing. When we look upon his face in glory and we witness his eternal majesty... There will be nothing hidden from us. Our eyes will be opened. Now watch this in verse 13. But now, in the partial, not yet the perfect, abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. But now, abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Why would he say that? Because right now you operate in faith and there are promises that have been made by God and you can trust those promises. We have faith that he will do everything that he says he's going to do. And in spite of the trials, in spite of the sufferings that we face in this world, no matter how hard or devastating our circumstances might be in this life, we look ahead in hope to that coming day. 
when either we will take our last breath and we'll stand in his holy presence or we'll be caught up with him in his holy presence and we will see him in all of his glory. And we'll receive the eternal inheritance that's been promised for which we have been sealed by the Spirit of God, the Bible says, until that day. And in that very moment when every tear will be wiped away and every broken body is made whole and we receive whatever that rejuvenation of new life is, whatever form we take, you know, in that eternal existence, there will no longer be need of faith for we're in the very presence of the object of our faith. There will no longer be a need of hope for our hope will then be realized and fulfilled forevermore. Faith and hope will be set aside as mere trinkets that we use to abide in Christ in this temporal world. But the greatest of these things will abide forever. The greatest of these three will abide evermore. And the greatest of these three is love. The greatest is love. So today, in this incredible passage, Paul turns even our gaze from the temporal trappings and cares and the trials of this life And he turns it toward the eternal hope that lies ahead for each and every one of us. And the love that we will exist in forevermore. We are not to live with a grab-all-you-can-get mentality. A me-first mindset. Propelled through this world by our own selfish ambition. The need for attention. The lie of self-importance. It's what the whole world revolves around today. The desire to be seen and known by others, to be valued by others, and to seek to find our own worth in all of those illusions. They are simply illusions. Paul says, there is a more excellent way. There is a more excellent way. We can experience God's perfect, eternal love. And then we have the opportunity to radiate His love as best we can to everyone around us until our very last day, the very last day that we draw breath. Because He is watching us, He is patiently waiting. So keep studying His Word. Submit yourself to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Keep growing and keep loving until it hurts, perhaps until it costs you everything. Because that is what Jesus did. Because he knew that the perfection of love and the eternal reward that we place all of our faith and hope in lies ahead across that thin veil into eternity. Amen? Would you bow?